Well, good morning, and happy birthday. If you look underneath your seats, each of you has a cupcake with a candle and a match, and so we're all going to, Theo, oh, he looked, he was very disappointed. Um, well, welcome to the first week here in Collective Church, our seventh year as a community. I mean, I am so grateful for an opportunity um, to, to kick off another year uh, with this community, um, seeing over not just um, each of us that stood up and in the, in the ways, how, how long that we've been here, but even for those of you that have been here as long as I have, to see the development and the work of what Jesus has been doing in your lives, not just through reading scripture or even through my teaching, but through your relationship with one another, through those simple things like discipleship group and our neighborhood dinners, the person that Jesus is making some of you into, I've gotten to sit on the front row of that, and man, I'm so excited for another year to kind of cheer on Jesus as he continues that work within us. But today, we reach a, uh, a turning point in the life of our community. Uh, this is always when turning points come, it's an opportunity for us to look back and also look forward. And what this regularly looks like for many churches is like a vision Sunday or a vision series. In many ways, it's kind of like an Apple keynote of like new products where like I'm supposed to come up in like white New Balances and a black turtleneck and like release all of these new ministries and programs and stuff where we get up and we go, this is how we're, you know, we're, we're implementing this thing or we got this building or this building fundraiser, you know, <laughs> like, oh, that's definitely something we would need to do. Um, and so we, we normally get up here and it's an opportunity for the pastors and leaders to like present and in many ways hype the vision of where the church is going in the future. It's a turning point where as we come from our past and we look to our future, in order to get us moving in that direction, we kind of, you know, we get on the turtleneck and we come up and we go, here's who Collective is going to be, what we're going to do in the coming year. And though those vision sermons and teachings and series are helpful and necessary in the life of a local church, we've done them at Collective and we are going to do them again in the future, as we've been approaching year seven, and I've been praying over how are we to launch and kick off this, this next year, I have been unable to shake another turning point story from the scriptures. In the story, in the book of Exodus in the Bible, Moses has been God's kind of chosen person, his leader of leading the people of Israel out from slavery to Egypt. And you get the crazy story of the Red Sea and bread manna dropping from heaven until the point where they get to Mount Sinai. And as the people of God gather together at the foot of Mount Sinai, it is a turning point for them, a turning point of Israel looking back at their past of slavery and oppression to Egypt and looking forward to the future of the promised land, this life as the people of God. And from here to there is the trek through the wilderness. And at this turning point, this uncertain future Moses makes a request of God. You'll see behind me Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, Look, you've told me, lead this people up, but you've not let me know whom you're going to send with me. You said, you know, you, God, said, I know you by name, and that you also have found favor with me. Now, if I have found favor with, excuse me, now if I have indeed found favor with you, Please teach me your ways, and I will know you, so that I might find favor with you. Now consider, this nation of Israel is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. 
It's almost like Moses interrupts him. If your presence does not go up with us from here, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this, by you going with us from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me and I know you by name. And then Moses makes the request, please let me see your glory. Here at this turning point, what continues in the following verses and into chapter 34 is one of the greatest moments in, in biblical history. Moses is given a glimpse of the glory of God, an ability to see God in all of his splendor. It leads him coming down the mountain and his face is shining, still reflecting off like the radiant glory of God back to his people. And even more than that, in verse uh, 5 through 7 of chapter 34, God not only gives Moses a glimpse of himself, he self-describes his character to Moses. He doesn't just let Moses see who he is, he tells him what he's all about. He teaches him his ways. Here at the turning point for Moses and Israel, what's been so convicting to me that has brought me back to what we're going to do for this series is the vision that Moses sought was not asking God, teach me what should be our way. It was not give us a roadmap for the wilderness, but rather Moses' primary focus, the vision that he was looking for, was not a vision of who they're meant to be, but teach me your ways, show me your glory. His primary focus was not a vision of who he is supposed to be as a leader or the people of Israel are meant to be as God's people and how they're going to get through the wilderness. The vision that he needed most was a vision of who God actually is in all of his glory. A vision not of plans, but a person. Moses saw an understanding not of programs, but an experience of God's very presence. And so as we're coming into year seven, my conviction is that we as a community need to take at least six weeks to get our eyes off of ourselves, to not assume that we know who God is and what he's done for us, to not forgo that first and most necessary vision of God with us. And so with this story and, and this conviction that I'm carrying in mind, today we're going to be beginning a six-week journey called Church of the Good Shepherd. This is a vision series in Psalm 23, and as you can guess by now, the use of that language vision series is because this is going to be a vision a little bit differently than normal, a vision not of ourselves and where we're going, but a vision of who God is to us. And so we're going to be moving through uh, one of the most popular and most quoted passages in all of Scripture, one verse at a time. So we just closed out eight weeks, a whole series on all of the Bible, and now we're going to go at like a snail's pace through one chapter. And my prayer is that this, these six weeks will serve as our own little Mount Sinai moment, a little moment where God picks us up like Moses and puts us in the cleft of the rock and gives us a glimpse of who he is, where he declares his character over us, and for us to see his glory, to rest in who he is, and to reflect on what that means for our lives. And so with that being said, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23 and join me in standing if you're able for the reading of God's word. And so as a prayer for this series and for the teaching today, I'm just going to repeat Moses' prayer from Exodus 33:13, where he says, Now if I have indeed found favor with you, 
Please teach me your ways, and I will know you, so that I might find favor with you. And now consider that us, this church collective, as your people. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths. All of this for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Amen. You may be seated. So who or what is God to you? When the word God is mentioned, what images and metaphors, ideas begin to bump around in that little brain of yours? As A.W. Tozer wrote, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. He went on to talk about how we all operate by some little secret law of the soul, that we each and all of one of us, we fall into a gravitational orbit around our preconceived notions of who God is. Our hearts, our souls, your mind, your life orbits is guided by the image of God, those metaphors and images, those words that bump around in that little head of yours. And so the truth is, this gravitational orbit is what you've heard me say before, the reality that we become what we worship. Or as uh, G.K. Beale, in one of his books, the way that he puts it is, we be, um, excuse me, he says, what we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or restoration. You've got to love the alliteration there. What we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What you have, regardless of whether or not you, what you call it God or not, whatever that thing is at the center of yourself that gives you purpose and meaning and you gravitate your life around, shapes you into a particular kind of person. And so just consider some of this for a moment. For those of us who maybe we receive Jesus' language of the metaphor or the language of God being our father is the primary image that we have within our mind. However, we bring on Jesus' language of father, but not his description of what it means for God to be father. And so what we end up doing is we fill in all of our understandings of what it means for God to be father with the stories of our own parents. If God is father and my father was absent, if God is father and my father was abusive, if God is father and my father is distracted, that becomes the orbit that we live around. It's not hard to find people that utilize abuse in spiritual leadership or in their relationships, either verbally or physically, who at the basis, at, at the deep level, they may say God is Father, but the image of Father that they have is not the one given by Jesus, but the one that they found within their broken family system. Similarly, those of us who at the center call it God, but we would say that God is the universe, 
We have this idea that whatever God is, it can't be named because it's so mysterious. It's big, it's beautiful, but at the end of the day, it really is quite impersonal. It's interesting that most of the people that say God is the universe is really a around the back door way of making themselves the authority for their lives. Why? Because their vision, their understanding, the metaphors and images they have for the God at the center of their life is an impersonal, distant universe, something that can be maybe touched and engaged with, but not something that is actually active in my life. Most interesting is those that have at the center of their point is God as love, but love not defined by Jesus, but as we would define it. What's so profound to me is how often I find people that would say God is love, defined by their understanding of love, who end up becoming some of the most hateful people in the world based off those people who don't fit within their understanding of what love is or ought to be. Do you see what you revere, you resemble either for ruin or restoration? You become what you worship. And so one of the chief dangers for our church as we go into year seven here is that we would become so effective that we would perfectively implement a vision for church all with a faulty view of God at the center, resulting in us being wonderfully efficient at ruining ourselves and ruining those in our communities. That we would, in the words of Jesus, go oh, the world over making converts who become twice the child of hell as ourselves. What we, what we need more than anything, the most important question that we can ask, the most important answer that we have for you as an individual and us as a community is an authentic answer for who God is that is shaping us into the sort of community that we were made and called to be. We need authentic answers for who God is and how he relates to us. And the great gift of Psalm 23 is it is the answer to that question that puts at the center of our attention uh, that, that, that primary metaphor of how we name God as this language of God as shepherd. Psalm 23 is a vision of God as shepherd. It's an invitation for us to enter into the orbit of a God who relates to us as shepherd. And so though none of us, let me double check, none of us in this room are shepherds, um, Nobody here, right? Okay, cool. Some of you have like toddlers, and that's about as close as we get in our culture today. Though none of us in the room are shepherds, all of us immediately have some kind of ideas bumping around. We know what a shepherd does. You know, they got the cool like crook staff thing. We know that they're in some way responsible for their sheep. We know they need to be present with them. We know they provide for the needs of the sheep. They protect them from danger. We know that shepherds need to know each member of the flock. They gotta know how many are there. A bad shepherd, you know, is like, are we missing any? Maybe, I mean, one, I don't know. They look the same as when I got, you know. A shepherd needs to know the flock and the shepherd needs to care for the flock, to be attentive to sicknesses and pregnancies and diseases within the flock, caring for them. And though we're going to need to follow David over all six verses in the next five weeks to see what he means by this, today I just want to begin with one key element to this metaphor, this image of God as shepherd for us. And I want to do this through four quotes, paraphrasing the Lord is my shepherd that this week I've just been chewing on that I think really bring out uh, some helpful reflections. The first comes from K.J. Ramsey. She's a trauma-informed professional counselor. In her book, The Lord is My Courage, she paraphrases The Lord is My Shepherd as, it means there is no one here but God to protect us. To say the Lord is my shepherd is the cry of the vulnerable 
and a commitment to God as the source of security in a place where there is none or where there's not nearly been enough. St. Nurses of Lambron, if we go back in time 800 years, he's a church leader in the Armenian church, in his uh, Armenian church, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes, the Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I wandered in the midst of beasts, dogs, and bulls that surrounded me. Lions opened their mouths and wished to ravish me. I was terrified, and because of fear, I made a treaty with the Savior. Therefore, do not be afraid, O my soul, for he is my shepherd." And then Dallas Willard, the late professor of philosophy at USC and the author of Life Without Lack, among others, he paraphrases the Lord is my shepherd as, I'm in the care of someone else. I'm not the one in charge. And then finally, the ancient North African theologian, St. Augustine, he says, when you say the Lord is my shepherd, no proper grounds are left for you to trust in yourself. Here in the Lord is my shepherd. Before we move into I have what I need in the valley of the darkest valley and tables with wine overflowing, yes and amen, to we begin with the truth that to say the Lord is my shepherd is to say I am his sheep. And this doesn't mean, as we're going to look at in verse 3, that I'm stupid. Sheep are far more socially intelligent than we give them credit for. But what it does mean if I am a sheep, is that I am utterly vulnerable apart from my shepherd. I'm helpless apart from him. Think about a sheep. I was, you know, we don't have the budget for me or the cleaning services to bring in a sheep right now to actually show it off. But sharp teeth, none. Claws, none. Cool like armadillo roll into a ball, like can't, none. They, they just vulnerable, helpless as all get out. Like what, what they are, like when you think of like fight, flight, camouflage, like all the different like, you know, animal, what the, the sheep is like none, they die, that's it. They're not, they're not very fast, they're not very strong, and they don't blend, they're, they're bright white. They just, they stick out among the, they're utterly hopeless apart from their shepherd. And man, as Lorenzo pointed to a moment ago, these past seven years, if they've done anything for us, they have made us so aware of our vulnerability and helplessness as a community, as individuals and as a church. Our weakness and our helplessness amidst the, the, what we face within this world. We just, you think about the past few years, there were moments that have come where you just, I, you, oh yeah, I am not in charge of this thing at all your own fragility. Again, that language is just vulnerability. Your openness to it, to any kind of attack or danger or sickness or challenge. And so to say the Lord is my shepherd is to say I am his sheep. It is a a posture of, of wild vulnerability. But to say the Lord is my shepherd is also to say something else that we've found true over the past seven years. It is a statement of confidence in my shepherd's protection, in his provision, in his peace, and in his guidance. To say the Lord is my shepherd, if you're taking notes, is in these two words I've been chewing on all week long, courageous vulnerability, both of those together that seem like a paradox, but the Lord is my shepherd is what it's all about, courageous vulnerability, what the biblical authors would use in one word of trust or faith, but... Courageous vulnerability sounds fun. You see, courageous vulnerability is the place where we relinquish our assumptions of control while still walking boldly in the midst of all our lives have to offer. 
And most of us are prone to one or two of those things. We either wild, we walk boldly and courageously into our lives all under the premise and the guise of the fact that we have any level of control or on the other side is we know we're 100% vulnerable and so we have no boldness to walk in at all. We tend to be all or nothing when it comes to either courage or vulnerability and the Lord is my shepherd is a paradox of finding both of those true at the same time. I can be utterly vulnerable and wildly brave, all because of the fact that my shepherd's right here. And so that all depends then on who's your shepherd. How are we able to place this kind of courageous vulnerability, this trust or faith in our shepherd? David, the author of Psalm 23, like sets his shepherd trust in that first, those first two words in Psalm 23, the Lord. Reading it here in all caps, whenever you see the Lord in all caps in your Old Testament or your Hebrew Bible, this is a way of translating the divine name of God out of reverence into a title. And so though we're 100% yes and amen to reverence over the name of God, what we need to be aware of is behind the Lord is the, the personal name of God. I am that I am behind it. The name revealed by God at the burning bush to Moses for David to say, I trust in my shepherd, the reason why is he knows his shepherd by name. He knows his shepherd by character. He knows his shepherd's ways. To go back to the movie Aladdin, and you know, you've got Prince Ali sitting there on the magic floating carpet, and he puts his hand out to Jasmine. Do you trust me? And then she gets on with him, and it's like, you don't know him from Adam. <laughs> Like, I'm sitting there and my daughter's just like, this is love. I'm like, you know, like, you don't get into a car with a man that you just, or a flying car with a man that you just met. <laughs> to say the Lord is my shepherd, that kind of courageous vulnerability in a God you don't know is a danger. It's, it's dangerous and terrifying no matter what, to be sure. But it is foolish and reckless if you don't know who that shepherd is. And so who is the Lord that makes him a good shepherd? Look to David's next psalm, Psalm 24, the verse two verses. What does David say? The earth and everything in it, the world and all of its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. The Lord is the one who is the creator of all things. The first basis of shepherd trust is in the power of the Lord. He is the creator God of all abundance. There is nothing that he needs or lacks in himself. There is no need that you can bring him that he's going to go, uh, can you call, call me next week? My I get paid next week and then I'll be, I'll be there for you. Can we schedule something in a couple of weeks when my schedule opens up more? He is the eternal God who has no lack. He is I am, eternal, timelessness, self-sufficient. He needs nothing. There is no counselor that he goes to for wisdom. He knows all. There's no help that he goes to, to to give him a little bit of an extra budge to get your need or your trouble through the door. He is all powerful. He answers only to himself. This is that big capital S word, sovereign. God doesn't have a boss he has to check up on. There's no over-shepherd he has to double-check on for your care and your needs. And so what this means 
for David writing the psalm and for those who follow the shepherd's ways is there is nothing my shepherd cannot provide me. There is no lack in my shepherd. There is no absence of power that he has for my moment. There is no lack of wisdom for guidance he can bring me. And there is no lack of authority that he's not able to speak and call me into. There is nothing that inhibits his care, nothing that holds back his guidance, and nothing that gets in the way of his will. And so the first place of shepherd trust is naming the power of the Lord, the God of all abundance. But second, David grew up hearing God's self-description that was given to Moses in Exodus 34. We were just talking about a moment ago. In Exodus 34, verse 5, go back to where we were a moment ago, Moses on Mount Sinai, he's just seen a glimpse of the glory of God. And then God, it says, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That is, he is loving and gracious and slow to anger, and he is still just. If the first basis of shepherd trust is in the power of the Lord, the second basis of our shepherd trust is in the goodness of the Lord. That he's the God of all faithfulness. You think about some of those self-description words there. Gracious and slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and steadfast love. Like that's, that's the kind of boss that I want. That's the kind of shepherd that I want. And more than just God's pinned tweet, more than just his bio statement here. This is his self-description that goes on to be proven throughout all of the story of scripture, that continues to be revealed throughout all of church history over the past 2,000 years. This character of God that's revealed in many of the stories that make up this room right now, and this character, this goodness, that is a testament to the fact that we're here seven years later on the other side of all that we've faced. The basis for shepherd trust, though there are many more attributes that could be named today, his power and his goodness together are those aspects of God which fan courageous vulnerability into flame. You see, if you have a shepherd who has power but not goodness, he's strong but you, you just don't know if you can trust his character. He may have infinity in his hands but fickleness in his heart. And what that means is you can't fully trust that shepherd. You can never be confident in his commitment. You can never be sure that no matter what you go into, he's there for you. Because you might miff it one day bad enough. You might drop the ball enough times that he's going to be done with you. You might come into some sin that's not going to be, his grace runs dry. You see, you can have a shepherd who's powerful, but not, but if he's not good, you can't fully trust him. And similarly, if you have a shepherd who's good and gracious and loving and abounding in faithful love, but he's not powerful, that God, that shepherd may have a heart of love, but he's got weak hands. And so you can't fully trust him. What happens one day when you come across the thing that he can't deal with? Chance, cancer, death, divorce, loss, sickness, chronic sickness, infertility, the struggles of life, that God must not be strong enough, and so I gotta trust myself. 
You see, at the heart of most of the dysfunction in our lives, the orbit around which we go, most of the sin in our lives is a self-reliance that is shaped by a faulty view of God. He's either powerful or he's good, but he's not both. And so if he's not both, I can't fully trust him. And so I go out into my life looking for the ways that I need to take and I need to grasp what I need for myself. He's not enough to satisfy me, so I've got to go out and find it somewhere else. He's not powerful enough for me, and so I've got to be the kind of person that walks in that kind of strength and power for myself. You see, this happens with lives that have been shaped now because my God is not powerful or good by a scarcity mentality. My life becomes obsessed with the lack of my life. Not enough money, not enough safety, not enough approval, not enough time, not enough love, not enough justice, not enough rest, knowledge, opportunity, not enough rootedness. There's not enough, and I can't trust that God has it, and so I'm going to go find it for myself. But with a vision of the Lord as both powerful and good, we are then able to say the next line of Psalm 23, verse 1, I have what I need. If my God is powerful and good, I have what I need. It's an audacious declaration of courageous vulnerability. I have what I need. Trusting dependence toward the good shepherd. I have what I need. I lack nothing. Eugene Peterson's, uh, his paraphrase of Psalm 23 is, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You see, in this posture, if I've got a God who's my shepherd, who is powerful and good that I can trust, that he's not only wanting to do something for me, he's not only wanting to be there for me, wanting to provide for me, but able to, then it means I no longer have to approach my life with a scarcity mentality. Looking and grasping for what I need. I can live with open hands, living in an abundance mentality that my shepherd can and will sustain all of my needs. And this is what we're going to look at next week in verse 2. You see, the abundance of our powerful and good shepherd is the key that unlocks the life that all of us are tirelessly chasing. Contentment? When was the last time you were content? Patience? Nope. But we want to be, don't we? Joy? Peace? None of us. Love, genuine love, not just warm feelings, but self-giving from the bottom of ourselves for another and to find that in another. Generosity. Or how about just an expectation of good? See, all of those things that we would want that like motivate all of our lives and those are the reasons why we go out and we grasp and we never find the contentment. We never find an expectation of good because there's always that scarcity. But when I have a shepherd who's abundant and powerful, it means, oh, he's got everything I need. And so I can be content with right here, right now. I can have patience in the midst of all of this because my shepherd is here with me. Now hear me though. If David's life is any example, this life without lack is not one measured by or dependent on your circumstances. David spent most of his life being hated and hunted and betrayed, whole seasons of his life hiding in a cave from people that wanted to kill him. I would argue that guy's got a lot of needs. First and foremost is like a couple of bodyguards that are just, you know, doing their job. And yet, in the midst of being hated, hunted, and betrayed, David is able to say, I, I have what I need. As he says in verse 4, not if, but even when I go through the darkest valley. 
The shepherd's leading actually assumes the darkest valleys in your life. Not as an absence of his shepherding, but as, as the reality of it. It's where the shepherd is going to take you. You see, the shepherd's peace is not an escape from the chaos or the pain or the difficulty of your life. And neither is the contentment that your God offers simply complacency with the status quo. But that even in the midst of this, his power, his goodness, because I know his character and I know his power, I can trust he's with me. In the midst of this, he's at work. In the midst of this, he's guiding me. This is the sort of life like Julian of Norwich in her famous prayer that we're able to live each day saying, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. That's delusional talk if you don't have a powerful and good shepherd. But this courageous vulnerability comes and it names the valleys at valleys. It names the darkest places as the darkest places. The loss is loss. The grief is grief. The pain is pain. And yet boldly boasts in the good shepherd and his power to say, I have what I need, even here. It's this same sort of abundance that Paul, in his life, faced lashings, beatings, multiple shipwrecks. You know you've got a bad life if you've gone through not one, but multiple shipwrecks. It's like someone who's been struck by lightning multiple times. You're just like, oh, you're cursed. Like, this isn't going well for you. Paul faced robbery, weariness, pain, hunger, cold, nakedness, ultimately martyrdom. And yet, in Philippians 4, 11, you'll see behind me, he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, and here it is, it's not for football, it's about contentment in your shepherd. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, the secret, what Paul says, of being content, the secret to the life of patience, the secret to the life of joy, the secret to a life of expectation of good amid all that you see around you, especially those darkest valleys, is found in the answer to your question, who is your shepherd? Who is the God at the center of your life? Who do you orbit around? Who do you revere and, are being res- and you resemble? Back to Dallas Willard. He says, the secret to a life without lack is rooted in our knowledge of God. The secret to the life of contentment that Paul just talked about in Philippians 4 is who is the God that you know at the center of it all? David, Julian of Norwich, Paul, they all had, and I have what I need. I've learned the secret to being content. All shall be well posture in the midst of the difficulties of their life because of a vision of the Lord as their good and powerful God. They were able to say, I have what I need because of their vision of God saying, he has what I need. And if he's for me, if he has what I need and he's for me, then I have what I need. I'm able to move into a life with that sort of a posture. And though I know you and I struggle, I know I struggle to make this true. I know I struggle, and I know you do too, to actually hold this reality true within your mind. The great gift, the greatest display of God's goodness and power for us to set this in front of us so that we may never forget it, 
the full, what, 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 what Moses got a glimpse of in its fullness, what, what David put into a poem that became a person is all in the person of Jesus, where we now have here down here on planet earth, not just a vision up in the mountains or a poem in a book, but a human being walking and breathing and living among us is God's power and goodness in the flesh. And so to say that Jesus is God is to say, here we have for us an in-the-flesh vision of the power and goodness of God, of the, the, the sustaining goodness of my shepherd. And so anytime I have a question about, is my shepherd powerful enough? Is my shepherd good enough? The gift of Jesus is God saying, exhibit A. What Paul says in Colossians, Jesus as the image of the invisible God. What Jesus identifies himself being the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come so they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For those of you here today who are skeptical or you find yourself doubting the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God's character, Jesus says, I came to lay my life down for you, my sheep. Do you doubt my, my faithfulness to you? Do you doubt my commitment to you in the midst of what you're going through? Look at the cross. To my death. I don't just love you to your death. I love you to my death. To the cross is my commitment, my faithfulness for you. At the cross, we see the compassion of God, the grace of Jesus, that this God is abounding in faithful love and truth, that this God would not just walk us through the darkest valley, but that he would lead the way for us, bearing the brunt of all the valley has to throw at us. He takes onto himself. Through the cross, in the words of Exodus 34, forgiving iniquity, sin, rebellion, and yet still remaining the God of justice who doesn't let sin just go off the hook so he can bring you in. When you've got that sort of Jesus, that sort of shepherd, what more can you say than he has what I need? But on the other side, for some of you here in a moment or in a time of your life where you are skeptical or you doubt the power of God, Jesus also says, I have come that you may have life in abundance. I have come so that you may have a life without lack. I have come so that you may have a life overflowing with the very power and life of God, a power that is so abundant that it conquers death itself. And the empty tomb is the vision of that kind of power of God. Do you doubt the power of God? Look at the empty tomb and remind yourself of the God who, who kicked death's butt on your behalf. And if death is in its grave because of this God, there is nothing before your life that your shepherd can't, can't tangle with. If my God has power over death, he has power over all creation, as he says in Psalm 24. And he's not just with me in my death, he has the power to lead me through it so that at the end of Psalm 23, he says, I may dwell in the house of the Lord for as long as I live, or as it can be translated, forever. Once again, if I've got this kind of power at work within me, displayed in the person of Jesus, he has what I need. With a cross that displays the goodness of our shepherd and the empty tomb that shows the power of our shepherd, we can look at those two things and go, oh yeah, he has what I need. There is nothing that I face in my life that he cannot speak to, that he cannot address, that he's not strong enough for. And so all of this brings us to where Psalm 23 really sang for me this week. These two words, four letters, 
a verb and an adjective that we're so prone to reading right over. The Lord is my shepherd. Is my. If you, have a, you like to underline in your Bible like me, just underline both of those words together. Is my. This is right here, prayerful meditation on Scripture, slow reading for the wind, because this was not, like I was already moving, and then it was halfway through the week when I was just doing prayerful meditation of the text. And I, I spent a good chunk of time just delighting in is my. Is my. The Lord is my shepherd. This is a psalm not of past praise over God who was in the past. Not the Lord was my shepherd. Oh, thanks be to God, he was my shepherd. And this isn't a declaration of future hope. Those, those two things are absolutely true. That's not what Psalm 23 is getting at. It is not the Lord was my shepherd and not will be and is definitely not a possibility of might be, could be, if I just. The Lord is, present tense, right now, right here, my shepherd. Did I just break the mic? Maybe I don't need a mic. If you're that loud, you don't need a mic. Is. And then that second word, my. This is why I hit so often on all of the plural pronouns in the scriptures and the need for a collective reading is because if you have that, you just assume, well, of course he's my. Remember, this is being written in a collectivist ancient society. So what will be far more common is the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd of Israel, his people. The Lord is his people shepherd, but the Lord is my. Here you have this powerful word that we as individualists assume, but sings out in a collectivist society of the ancient world, and would again if we would hear it this way, as the intimate personal insanity that the God of all creation relates to you, me, myself, as his little sheep that he cares for and attends to. The Lord is Ryan's shepherd. The Lord is Landon's shepherd. The Lord is Alyssa's shepherd. The Lord is Melissa's shepherd. The Lord is Travis's fish. The Lord is Keely. The Lord is Kent's. The Lord, you, Owen, your name there, Johnny, go down, the, your name there, Aaron, your name there, Tim. The Lord is me, my, Ryan's shepherd. And what I love is when we bring the is and the my together, what this means is the Lord is the present tense shepherd of my present tense self. To say the Lord is my shepherd is to say the Lord is the shepherd of Ryan with all of his mess. The Lord is the shepherd right now, right here of Ryan in the midst of all of his fear, in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of your confusion, your exhaustion and tiredness, in the midst of your sin from this past week. In the midst of it all, the Lord is, present tense, the shepherd, not to some future version of you, not to some past commitment of you when you were a kid or when you really believed, but right now, you sitting, your butt in this chair today at our seven-year anniversary, the Lord is your shepherd. And when you bring these together, is is language of confidence and my is language of vulnerability. Confident, vulnerable, God's shepherding presence of my present tense self. And so if you and I are like sheep, then all we need or really at the end of the day can do is trust in our shepherd, to trust in his power and goodness, to look to him as the one who has the guidance, the boldness, the healing, the safety, the provision, the instruction, the rest, the forgiveness, the life that I need. 
See, the place of courageous vulnerability, the practice of ismai, of ismai becoming a regular pattern of my life is the place of prayer. Where else do we get up and we declare is my on a regular basis other than when we stand before God in courageous vulnerability, bringing our present tense selves into the presence of our shepherd? This is the place of prayer. It's the place of us opening before ourselves, not hiding anything from God or any longer moving in a place of self-reliance, I've got this, but facing each moment and each day from a place of utter vulnerability, but confidence in the shepherd who can provide and guide through it all. Prayer is the place when we return to the strong and safe arms of our shepherd, knowing that that is where we have all that we need. And so if there is to be any vision for our church today as a people, any goals for us in the next year, anything that, woo, product, you know, thing that we're calling anybody to, in light of the vision of Psalm 23, verse 1, for us to be a church of the good shepherd can only be for us to be a people of prayer that we live with an is my posture on a daily basis. What Paul said is praying without ceasing. Displayed in the life of Jesus, a prayer throughout the day, beginning and ending and in the middling of his day with prayer. And so individually and together, to be a church of the good shepherd is to be distinguished as a humble people who bring daring prayers to our shepherd as we boldly bring our present tense mess into the powerful and good presence of our shepherd.